All right, so we are in Hebrews 4 again. I said last week that there is a, a, a lot in this passage, and we're going to spend a couple weeks on it. Uh, so we're going to camp out again in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 primarily. Um, we read a longer passage last week, but we're primarily going to be in these verses today. Um, and last week, we just we meditated on the comforts, the great joys of verse 15 primarily, 15 and 16, that because Jesus has suffered and been tempted as we are, he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses and our temptations. He doesn't only know us from afar, he knows us because he's lived as we have. Um, he is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, which is us. He's able to and can and does deal gently with us when we come to him, to his throne of grace, and we can draw, we can with confidence, we're told in verse 16, draw near to his throne of grace. There is so much wonderful truths about our God and Savior, Jesus, in verse 15 and 16. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go listen to that. We just reflected on that. There's more in this passage today. Specifically, we're going to look at the warning or exhortation in verse 14 and how it's connected to the rest of this passage. Kind of, we've got to do some kind of logical piecing together the puzzles of these verses. Okay? So we'll start in verse 14. Hebrews 4, 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, if you've been with us for any length of time as we've gone through Hebrews, the last part there about holding fast our confession should sound familiar. This is the main call to action. This is the main warning, the exhort, main exhortation of this letter, um, this really this sermon, of what, which is Hebrews. And we've already come across it a number of times. So just to jog your memory, in chapter 3, we read it, We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. A few verses later, still in chapter 3, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Earlier in chapter 4, verse 1, we read, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So again and again, throughout this sermon that is Hebrews, the author pauses from, preach, from proclaiming, from teaching doctrine, from proclaiming who Jesus is and the great salvation that he brings to call us, to call the readers to respond rightly. In light of this great salvation, how ought we to respond? And he says, hold fast, strive, take care, be diligent, exhort one another, keep going, don't give up. As he said in chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This Jesus, Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, which means he rules over all things. As we saw in the opening verses of the book, he is the one through whom the world created, through whom the world was created, and the one for whom the world was created, the heir of all things, He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. This is God in the flesh. And as such, he has tasted death for everyone. He has died in our place 
for our sins, that we might be purified and cleansed and brought back to God, brought to glory. This is the great salvation, the, the news, the gospel message that the world needs to hear and believe and cling to. There is no greater message, no greater news. But we know from reading this letter and all of these warnings that some of them were tempted to give up, to let go, to forget what they had been taught, taught to stop pressing in, to stop learning and growing, to stop gathering together with the church for encouragement. They were tempted. And we need such warnings just as much today. There are numerous temptations for us as well to give up, to lose our diligence, to become faithless, to turn away from God, turn away from his word, turn away from his people. And it'll be helpful just to consider some of these that we face. So for some today, the temptations are relational in nature. We might find that people are not what they claim to be. People who claim God, people in the church, are not what they claim to be. Perhaps a Christian leader or someone that you looked up to failed in some way, proved to be a fake, committed some sin that called into question everything they stood for. Perhaps a church community did this. For some, the temptations are intellectual. Perhaps you struggle to find the claims of Christianity plausible, believable. Or perhaps you have suffered in such a way or have witnessed suffering in such a way that you have a hard time reconciling. How can a good God allow such, such suffering in the world, in my life? For some, the temptations are moral, ethical. Just the claims, the Christian morals and ethics can just seem out of place and even oppressive today. It seems that if I held to such things, I would be seen as intolerant and judgmental. And of course, for many, the, the temptations are just practical. What's the point? Prayer doesn't seem to do anything. I don't really get the Bible. It doesn't, doesn't seem to help my life that much. Church doesn't really do anything for me, and... I could do a lot of other things Sunday mornings. Likely you have felt the pull and attraction of, of some or more of these. And likely you know a number of people that have brought up such questions and, and struggles and issues. These are conversations happening all over the place today. And in many places you were regarded as a hero if you, not if you continue to hold fast through such things, but if you give up. You are perhaps seen as wise and brave and having conviction, paving your own path if you not only struggle, but if you give up. Now, it's tempting in this situation that we live in to extend only sympathy or only warnings. Or think for ourselves, if, if we find ourselves with these temptations to receive and think we need only sympathy or only warnings. But scripture calls us to both. That is, Scripture calls us to extend both a, a personal or pastoral or priestly even response to people when they suffer, when they are tempted, but also a, a prophetic kind of response. So let me explain. The, the personal, pastoral, priestly kind of response is something like this. There is a place for Christians to struggle and question and doubt 
to cry out to God. The Psalms give us, give us this freedom again and again. Why do you stand away, far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Speaking to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. God encourages us not to ignore such thoughts, but to give voice to them and bring them to him in faith. He can handle them. And as a church, we should make clear that there is a place for this. We should be a community that allows people to do what the Bible allows people to do. We should be willing to walk with one another through such times, be a listening ear, not just give quick, pithy platitudes, but bring to their remembrance God's word and all of what God's word says. I feel like the wider church culture that many of us have been a part in hasn't always allowed for this. Hasn't always allowed for what the Psalms allow for in Lamentations and Habakkuk. And yet, listening is not our only responsibility. Affirming that there is a place for struggle is not our only responsibility. There is a prophetic response needed as well, like we see here in Hebrews, like we see in the Old Testament prophets, like we see in Jesus. And that is this. Christian, hold fast. Beware of the deceitfulness of your own sin and it's all of its deceiving diversity. Beware of being deceived by sin. Beware of hardening your heart against God and his word and his people. Beware of giving up on God because you can't understand him completely. Beware of giving up on God because you find his morals and ethics out of line with the particular time and place that you find yourself living in. Beware of giving up on God because his plan for your life doesn't match, match your expectations. Let us hold fast our confession. Keep confessing Jesus as Lord. Keep confessing Jesus as Savior. Keep holding on to him, trusting him, turning to him. I said last week that every bit of scripture is there because of some, by God's providence, because of some need or lack in us. And so we have warnings like this because we need such warnings. We will be tempted to give up or to slowly drift away. We will be tempted to let other things, other voices, other words, other pressures be greater than God's word. And don't miss the corporate nature of all of these warnings. That, that, that is, that this is something we do together with one another's help. Let us hold fast. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach God's rest. Exhort one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Church, this is something that we are going to be much more successful at if we do it together than alone. Now, as we begin to connect the dots of this passage, we see that God doesn't only tell us what to do or not to do, but he gives us reasons why we ought to do it or not to do it. Reasons why we ought to hold fast. In other words, along with the warnings that we find all throughout Hebrews, God gives us all of these motivations why we ought to heed those warnings. He is seeking to compel us 
to urge us, to motivate us to hold fast. It gives us reasons. And I want to draw your attention to the two different ways, two different kinds of motivation that God gives us in this larger section here before us. Two different kinds of motivations that we might think are incompatible. And what tips us off to these is that almost every sentence in here is, starts with a connecting word, like therefore, since, for. All of this is tied together. So let me point, out, point this out for you. So in verse 14, it began, since then. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So since then connects this back to what was just said. It gives an implication from the previous verses. And then if you go to the start of verse 15, it starts with another transition word, for. So since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let's hold our fast our confession, for. And then here's going to be another grounding, rooting for the command to hold fast. So both what comes before verse 14 and what comes after verse 14 are the basis, are the grounds for the warning to hold fast. Does that make sense? But if you look closely, what you find before verse 14 and what you find after verse 14 are very different. They're two very different kinds of motivation. So let's go back to verse 11 and look at what comes before verse 14 and the, and the call to hold fast our confession. Here is a motivation that God gives us to do that. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of obedience. So that's the same call to action there. That's just like the warning to, to hold fast our confession. And then verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So verses 12 through 13 explain why this is so urgent. They give some motivation for such diligent striving. God and his word is living and active, piercing and exposing the innermost parts of you. And you, will, you, you are naked and exposed before him. There's no hiding. There's no getting away. There's no pretending. And one day you will stand before him and you must give an account. And there will be no hiding. There will be no pretending. We don't need to beat around the bush or pretend otherwise. This is a motivation of a certain kind of fear. There is a fearfulness to that. That's why verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1 can say, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach God's rest. This is made even more abundantly clear in chapter 10 of Hebrews, where we read, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think 
will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You, you see similar language and similar warnings throughout the prophets in the Old Testament and throughout the teaching of Jesus. Many of Jesus' parables have this same flavor. This isn't the only kind of motivation that God gives us, that God seeks to use, but he does use it. God is saying, I am your creator God, the one to whom you owe everything. And I love you more than you know, have sent Jesus to die for your sins and draw you to myself. There is salvation in no other name, no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But beware of refusing to come. Beware of thinking that there is life outside of me. Beware of thinking that life outside of me is better. Beware of yourself and the deception to sin. Beware of letting other voices, other words be more meaningful, more present and authoritative than my own voice. If you don't hear and heed what I am saying, if you don't examine yourself in light of my word, if you neglect such a great salvation, you will find it a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. I used the analogy last week of a mountain climber who, if you were, were to go mountain climbing, you have to have a certain amount of fear of the mountain. You have to be diligent to do all of your preparation, check your straps and your climbing gear, and, and make sure you get a good night's sleep and your mental state is good. You, your fear of the dangers should lead you to be very diligent, to take it very seriously. Otherwise, you will be in grave danger. So there's a fear that spurs us on to action. And many of the most significant things in life, many of the most joy-inducing and exhilarating things in life require us to take them very seriously, to have a proper sense of fear. And this is kind of hard for us because in many ways our society is one that, that loves to not take things seriously, that can be very trite, flippant, impulsive. We just want to live for the moment and not think too deeply about things, not take things too seriously. And there's some temporary thrill that comes from such kind of living, but there's not joy, there's not purpose, there's not meaning. There isn't awe and wonder. God is not to be taken lightly, and that in no way means that there is not great joy to be found in God just like with skydiving. Some of you don't find that joyful. That's okay. But there is great joy and exhilaration. So that's what you have before verse 14. This kind of fearful warning of refusing to come to God and find his salvation and find his goodness. Then you have verse 14 with the, with the, the call, the warning, hold fast, And then if you read this whole section in one, verses 15 and 16 kind of jump out. 
as very, seeming very different with a completely different kind of motivation. Verse 15, for, so again, this is flowing out of what was just said, gives the motivation for holding fast. Here's why you ought to hold fast your confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now this is a completely different kind of motivation. God isn't saying beware. God is saying look at me. See how good I am. See how much goodness there is in me. See how I willingly, joyfully receive all who come to me and give them life. See how I rule from a throne of grace. I don't rule from afar. I have come and lived and suffered and died just in part so that I can fully sympathize with you and deal gently with you when you come. You can know for certain that if you come to me, you will receive mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. See the goodness and life and joy comfort and hope and peace that are in me. See how good it is. See how good I am and come to me. It's somewhat like when our kids are trying to get our dog not to do something and don't do that isn't working. They often say, treat, treat. Look at the goodness of this thing right here. That other thing still might look good, but look at the better, how good this is. Or as parents, as your kids get older and you want them to prioritize spending time with you, and you can no longer just tell them, spend time with me, you invite them to do things that they enjoy doing, and you seek to, to show them that you care for them and love them, to look at the goodness that is in you. All throughout his word, God is inviting us, pleading with us, and calling us to experience his goodness. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Hebrews 11, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is a different kind of motivation. And we need both. We need both kinds of motivation. The, the fearfulness and warning of life apart from God and the goodness of life with God. Without the fearful warnings, we would be tempted to make light of God's judgment. Hey, things are pretty good with Jesus. He really gets you. There's lots of benefits. Forgives your sin, but whatever works for you. Maybe you can just figure out life on your own. We, we will be tempted to get flippant and apathetic, to, to merely present Jesus as like a better kind of ice cream than other kinds of ice cream, but you have your preference 
No, strive and fear to obtain Christ and all that is in him, lest you miss out. For one day you will stand before him and give an account of your life. And he sees and knows all. Your life depends on it. The, the warnings of Scripture, especially if you go read the Old Testament prophets, are quite shocking. But that's part of the point. They're meant to awaken you up to reality and life. Waking you out of your senses, out of your daydreaming. On the other hand, without the gracious invitation and the clear description of the goodness of life in God, we would find ourselves fearing God, but not really loving God. We would find ourselves coming to him merely to escape something, but not to get anything from him, not to find him. The, the fearful warnings help us know the seriousness, the weightiness of the matter, but they don't show us the goodness and the value of what is before us in Jesus. Perhaps an analogy can, can help get this uh, across. Can, uh, pretend that you inherit some money and you decide to buy a small tropical island. A lot of money. And you decide to move you and your family there permanently. Sandy beaches, cool breezes, warm weather. It's perfect. But as you are on your way there, the, the God who created you and loves you comes and tells you that the worst, this island is located in the worst tsunami zone in the world. And more than that, at this moment, there is a tsunami on its way that will decimate the island. And you think, looks fine to me. I don't see any waves. What does God know? Then God says, but, but, but hear me, there are deadly snakes slithering all over the place. In fact, in fact, they're camouflaged. You can't even see them until they're right up on you. And you think, well, I can't see them. I don't see any snakes. That was the camouflage part. You must be lying, God. I'm sure they're not that deadly. And God says, but look at the... No, then God says, but the air is poisoned, and it will slowly kill you. And you think, well... I don't see any dead people lying around. It seems nice and fresh. It's an island. How bad can it be? What do you know, God? But then God says, but look at this island over here. No tsunamis, no snakes, no poisonous air. It's safe and secure. In fact, I keep it safe and secure. It's filled with lovely fruit trees and coconut trees, all sorts of lovely delicacies for you. It is overflowing with my goodness, my comforts, my promises. Here you will find me. This island was created for you. But you must trust me and flee that island that you think is so good. This is something of our situation. And I'm not only talking about our situation in the future, about eternal life, either in God's new creation or being cast out of God's presence. I'm also talking about our situation here and now. We have put ourselves in grave danger. And we are deceived because of our sin. And God is warning us of the dangers all around us right now and the tidal wave of dangers that is to come if we refuse to come to him with haste. He is peeling back the blinders on our eyes and helping us see the true state of things. That island is not what you think it is. Reality is not what you think it is. Remember, sin is deceptive. And leads us to have hard hearts and blind eyes. And if we don't 
believe what God says, if we don't take him at his word and heed his warnings, we will not see the danger right in front of us. We will not see the snakes and the tsunami and the poisonous air. So look ahead. Look at Christ who sympathizes with you, who calls you to come, who deals gently with you. Look at his throne of grace. See the goodness of Jesus for, for all who come and use this as motivation to hold fast your confession. Look at that other island and see how good it is. But at the same time, never lose sight of the warnings and the fearfulness of life apart from Christ. While that may not be your primary focus, primary motivator, it should never be lost. And at times it may need to come into clearer focus so that we might hold fast our confession. We cannot afford to be flippant and lazy, unprepared, just coasting along. We cannot afford to ignore God's word and just assume that God will understand, God will treat us as we want to be treated. Dane Ortland writes of this. He says, What elicits tenderness from Jesus is not the severity of the sin, but whether the sinner comes to him. Whatever our offense, he deals gently with us. If we never come to him, we will experience a judgment so fierce it will be like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth at us. Taken from imagery taken from Revelation. If we do come to him, as fierce as his lion-like judgment would have been against us, so deep will his lamb-like tenderness for us. We will be enveloped in one or the other. To no one will Jesus be neutral. And I suspect that we find it somewhat difficult to hold on to both of these kind of motivations. Or we find it difficult to see God as capable of delivering a lion-like judgment and a lamb-like tenderness. And I suggest that that difficulty is because we are not very God-centered in our thinking. We haven't fully grasped that the dividing line of humanity is Christ and Christ alone. That the dividing line of humanity, of the world as God designed it, is one's relationship with Christ, one's view of Christ, one's love for and gratefulness for Christ. And we find it difficult because of that, that God could extend such vastly different responses, we think, merely because somebody came to Christ or refused Christ. Is that really that big of a deal? Merely because someone trusted God's means of salvation to give all glory to God or chose their own. No, that's much too God-centered for us. That makes much too much of God, we think. Perhaps we could understand these warnings better if they were, if they were warnings for the really evil people out there, like the Hitlers, the murderers, the people in a completely different category for us. We could see how they could use to heed these warnings of God being a lion in judgment. But God corrects our thinking. And God calls us to see him as greater. What matters is that we come to him. Not the severity of our sin, but that we come to him truly in faith, casting ourselves on him, 
seeing that he is completely sufficient, to see that he has done everything necessary to save us so that he gets all the glory. We trust him and his word, and everything else flows from that. And so both the dire warnings and the gracious invitations that God gives us in Scripture aim to make much of Christ. They aim to show that the dividing line of all humanity is Christ and Christ alone, is what God has done for us in Jesus. They compel us to not merely seek to be better people, to be more religious people, to be more loving, to be more just, whatever, but to be Christian people, people who make much of Christ. Let's pray.